Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you here in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the podcast, we'll be talking about Americans buying properties in Italy uh, that may be driven by housing conditions in the United States. But uh, first, the news data point for this week is 20. That is the number of years it's been since the U.S. dollar has been as strong as it is right now. That's according to the U.S. dollar index which measures the value of the U.S. dollar against a basket of other international currencies. Well, inflation may be soaring, but you know what else is soaring? The U.S. dollar as well. Is that good? Should we be concerned? Well, we got a milestone in the currency markets today that we want to talk about. The euro hitting parity with the U.S. dollar for the first time in 20 years. Today's fall marks the weakest that the euro has been since 2001. And it is raising fears of a recession in Europe. Obviously, people in the United States have all sorts of economic worries right now. Inflation tends to be the top word that people cite. But yeah, in this international context, actually, the U.S. dollar obviously is very strong. And so I guess, Adam, as a first general question here... I mean, is the strong dollar that we have right now, is that a kind of goal of the Fed's current policy or is it just a kind of unintentional byproduct? It's definitely not an objective. It's a side effect. And it's a side effect of the fact that the Fed is the world's leading central bank. And amongst the advanced economies, amongst its peers, it's been the first one to move aggressively to raise interest rates to stop inflation. The European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, who are the other two major advanced economy uh, peer central banks have been relatively slow to raise interest rates. The US economy is relatively speaking stronger than the European economy. And in a bad situation as well, so if we shift from, as it were, the optimistic interpretation to the pessimistic one, people run into the dollar as a safe haven. So one way or the other, this is a side effect essentially of this uncertain conjuncture that we're in in the global economy with the Fed moving more rapidly than others. Um, uh, One reason we kind of know this is there's really good reason to believe that they would not be foolish enough to try and target the exchange rate. Because central banks used to target exchange rates and in the 1990s really quite comprehensively gave it up. So the last advanced economy central banks to really get into trouble targeting exchange rates were the Italian and the British central banks in 1992 um, it's really difficult to do because if you announce an exchange rate peg, you basically make yourself into a sitting duck for large scale speculation. And there's kind of an unlimited amount of funds that can be mobilized against you in what's called a one way bet. 
And so emerging markets as well, even though they have much more reason to try and target exchange rates because they're more dependent on borrowing in dollars, they're more heavily export dependent than the US economy. Uh, they also, since the 1990s, have moved away from any explicit effort to target exchange rates. I mean, so imperative is it to avoid this huge mistake of trying to target an exchange rate directly that, that either you abandon it and just allow your exchange rate to fluctuate, which is what you know, most countries do nowadays, or you go the entirely other route, which is the European solution, which is to abolish the exchange rate by means of a currency union. Um, which is what the Eurozone is. I mean, one way of explaining the Eurozone is precisely this learning in the 80s and 90s that attempting to explicitly target an exchange rate was a high road to nothing. In fact, it was a, it was a policy that would lead to disaster more often than not. But exchange rates mattered. So how did you escape this impasse? Well, what you did was you joined all of them together under a single central bank. Okay, so if the strong dollar is a product of international currency markets... I'm just curious if if these currency markets work the same way that other markets do, uh, whether they're subject to just the basic laws of supply and demand that we're all used to. I mean, so if the strong dollar indicates that there is more demand for dollars than there is supply, that leads to a kind of higher price for the dollar. Does that mean there will then eventually be an adjustment, you know, the way there are in other markets, sort of more supply gets produced eventually, and that puts supply and demand back in equilibrium, so the price drops? Or do just currency markets work in a completely fundamentally different way? This is a really fundamental question, and it's surprisingly hard to answer in a way that isn't like extraordinarily technical. Part of the problem is that the concept of the stock of money is really slippery. So this idea that somehow if, you know, the dollar is rising, it must mean it's scarce relative to demand. And so therefore, you know, surely more dollars will somehow that that that's really not going to help us. So maybe a better way to think about it is to just imagine what happens on the currency markets, what's actually going on there, what what transacts. And basically, on the Forex market, what happens is that people wanting to sell one currency to buy another meet people wanting to buy a currency and sell another, right? That is the, so people wanting dollars and wanting to sell euros meet people who want to buy euros and sell dollars. And yes, broadly speaking, the way in which the foreign exchange rate moves is determined between the balance of those two groups. And if there are more people wanting to buy dollars uh, with euros on a given day, then there are people wanting to sell dollars for euros, then what will happen is that the dollar value will generally rise. Now, will that unleash the kind of compensating, offsetting, equilibrating forces that standard economics would suggest? That's where things get really complicated. I mean, if you thought of international currency movements and the foreign exchange markets as driven by trade, which is, if you might think, the sort of kitchen sink way of thinking about this, that's why people want foreign currency to buy foreign goods, then there is a mechanism of equilibration because as the dollar rises, so if people currently, you know, why do they want dollars? Let's imagine it's because they want to buy American goods. And so they need to buy dollars to buy the American goods. As they do that, the dollar rises, those American goods become more expensive. So they want fewer of them. So demand for dollars goes down and the market balances itself out. And conversely, on the European side, as the dollar rises against the euro, you could infer that that means that fewer Americans want European goods than the other way around. And so therefore, the euro falls. And as the euro falls, those European goods become cheaper for American buyers. And so people eventually want more of those European goods. But even just spelling that out, it's perfectly obvious that that's not what's going on right now, right? Because Europe has a trade surplus with the United States. America has a huge trade deficit. And that clearly isn't what's driving the strength of the dollar. 
in fact, the strength of the dollar may be driving the deficit and not the other way around. So what's going on? The basic issue here is the scale of the foreign exchange market is just mind-blowing, right? So it's about $7 trillion a day in foreign currency changing hands. Now, the total value in a year of global trade is $28 trillion. So the ordinary turnover of foreign exchange markets in the world could cover all of the transactions that were necessary for foreign trade, if one you know, is allowed this very crude comparison, in four days of trading. You know, and the other 51 weeks of the year, if we only traded four days of the week, you know, you could just do everything else, which is what they do, right? The vast majority of foreign exchange transactions are not driven by trade. They're driven by financial flows in which balance sheets around the world economy are adjusted, in which people buy and sell dollars as ways of hedging against the risks on their balance sheets. And the result of this is incredibly unpredictable. In fact, there's a very famous economics paper from the early 1990s by Misa and Rogoff, which shows that the a random walk model, in other words, a model which basically throws a dice as to decide where the foreign exchange rate moves in the next period and then throws a dice again, that kind of a model is as good at predicting where foreign exchange rates are going to go as any underlying economic model, any effort to actually provide a formal, you know, an account in terms of interest rates or the cost structure or the growth of economies. Now, unsurprisingly, two generations of economists have argued with this. And a softer version of that, I think, is now where we're at, which is that your chance of being able to predict the precise level of the exchange rate is as good as random. Like, you really don't have much hope of doing that. But at any given moment, can we say that the underlying forces make it more likely that the dollar will appreciate rather than depreciate? Our models will allow us to do that to a degree. And on the basis of that, then you can also trade and make money, right? It would be surprising given that the Bank of Japan is committed to keeping interest rates at zero or slightly below zero, and the Fed is committed to raising interest rates quite aggressively, it would be incredibly surprising if the yen didn't depreciate against the dollar, given that configuration. Could you or I, with any reasonable model that we could operationalize, actually predict how much it will depreciate by? No. So, you know, you can make directional bets, but you can't really make precise betting. And that's that's, as it were, one of the kind of conclusions from all of this. Seven trillion dollars a day. I, I wish that was the data point at the top. I should have done a little more digging there. But I wonder how do, yeah, normal Americans say experience the strong dollar in their everyday lives. I mean, it, it seems as far as I can remember, when I was a kid, and there's kind of abstract pride in having a strong national currency. You know, the dollar is strong. That sounds like a good thing, but. I wonder if in practice, does it just mostly mean for most Americans that basically exports from America are becoming more expensive and this just produces a weaker national economy overall? I mean, what, what does this mean from the perspective of normal sort of everyday Americans? So since you pitched this as a question about Americans, it's just it means less for Americans than the foreign exchange rate means for most other people in the world. Why? Because America being a very large and rich economy is a relatively closed economy. So total trade, imports plus exports in relation to American GDP are about 23% of American GDP. Compared to the same metric for Germany, where it's 89%, and the same metric for a small European country that trades very intensively with its neighbors like Belgium, where that metric's 169%. So you can see why Germany and Belgium would have a real interest in fixing their exchange rates relative to each other, because if those 
given the scale of trade in relation to their economies, it would be disastrous if the exchange rate moved. From the point of view of America, it's present as an issue, but it's really not terribly salient in most people's lives. I mean, even just in terms of travel, right? I mean, about 13% of Americans leave the United States for travel every year. So those people will benefit from a very strong dollar right now, but they're obviously a tiny minority of the population. The most Americans will feel the exchange rate movement in above all as importers. So, and the effect of the strong dollar is to make imported foreign goods cheap, um, which is highly significant. Not imported foreign goods like oil, which are set in dollars. So the strength of the dollar doesn't help, but everything else, you know, goods from China or whatever, come more cheaply because of the strength of the dollar. There is also, however, a reverse effect on American exporters, but the number of people that work for highly export-exposed, price-sensitive manufacturing firms, when we think of, as it were, the classic sector that hurts, it's you know something like you know an engineering company that has to sell goods to the world, and all of a sudden it's competing against Germans who are selling in euro, which is now at parity to the dollar. Those sorts of producers are really uh, severely affected, but they're a small minority of the US economy, but they can matter very much. So in 2015, 2016, ahead of the election that elected Donald Trump, one of the most underrated historical moments, really, is the fact that as a result of the dollar strength in that period, the manufacturing sector of the US economy in the heartland, in the Rust Belt, was suffering a really serious squeeze. And so when Donald Trump appealed to protectionist sentiment and so on, what he captures was that rather localized experience of small manufacturing communities dotted around the United States, which is largely now a service sector economy, which were feeling this hit. So if you want to answer this question, it depends whether you're looking at somebody in a big box store in a mall in the United States who benefits, or you go to somewhere like Peoria, Illinois, where you know Caterpillar, the giant construction machinery firm, is located. That's where its headquarters are. And they feel a strong dollar very sensitively there because it makes their exports much less competitive when compared to Japanese construction equipment, which competes in the same markets. So if the dollar is rising as a result of, yeah, basically people buying dollars on an international currency markets, I mean, where does that investment end up exactly? I mean, there's a financial investment in the strong dollar around the world. And does that end up in the real US economy somehow? And and if not, where does it go? So this is something one has to track very carefully through the um, international financial flows statistics. And and they, they tell us a really interesting story. So if you wanted the, you know, the bit of foreign investment in the United States, capital flows to the United States that was most directly, you know, real economic flows, um, it would be foreign direct investment. So when, say, a Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturer builds, you know, sets out to build a plant, I don't know, in Ohio or somewhere like that, that is direct inflow. So foreign direct investment is the most direct form of that kind of flow, but that's only a very small part of the capital that flows into the United States. Um, in 2021, U.S. liabilities to foreigners increased by $1.86 trillion. And of that, $450 billion, so less than a third, was assets of you know, a real type, so investments in equity in the real economy. The vast majority of the, the inflow was took the form of various types of debt security, treasuries, American government securities, corporate bonds, or uh, bank accounts. Uh, and money then flowed from those into money market mutual funds and those kind of assets. So 
the majority of the financial flows that come into the United States are within that financial sphere. And you could say, well, to that extent, they don't benefit in a primary way, the real economy, except that, of course, that's really to think in accounting terms rather than economic terms, because as that $1.8 trillion of foreign money flows into the US, it changes the price of all assets in the US economy in a way which means that American money then is more directed, if you like, towards chunks of the real economy. So there's a very complex hydraulic system in which it is absolutely true that foreign investors in the US tend to predominate in certain sorts of relatively safe kind of assets. I guess, finally, what kind of problems then is the strong US dollar now posing for the rest of the world exactly? Well, I think the first thing to say is a strong dollar is not necessarily equal to a strong economy. Um, But right now, the US economy is running hot. And the problem for the rest of the world is that they feel the effects of that. If you're Europe or Japan, this spills over by way of pressures on their central banks to raise interest rates. I mean, that was one of the things that was going on um, with the ECB in recent weeks is would the ECB follow the Fed in raising rates? And it's decided to do so. It has to, in a sense, because if it doesn't, its currency is going to devalue. So big advanced economy players in the world like Europe and Japan are put under pressure and face this trade-off. Either they match the Fed in raising interest rates, which will slow down their economies and put pressure on borrowers there, or they will see a devaluation and they will have to absorb the effects of that. For emerging markets, the impact is even more severe because emerging markets and low-income countries still to a considerable extent, maybe not in the public sector, but certainly in the private sector, borrow in dollars. So as the dollar strengthens, the real value in terms of domestic currency and other currencies around the world of their liabilities, of their obligations to service and repay debt increase. And at the same time, they're also suffering the prospect of an increase in interest rates from the Fed, which is struggling to contain inflation in the United States. And there's very good econometric evidence to suggest that a rising dollar is one of the main drivers of global slowdowns for this reason. Because what it does is it puts pressure on the emerging market, low-income countries of the world, which now constitute, depending on on how you measure it, between a third and half of the world economy. Um, They are all sucked into the drama of America's roller coaster ride. And as the Fed tightens, their financial conditions tighten too. And their economies are, generally speaking, less well set up to withstand the pressures. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, around the world now, there is concern about the impending risk of a emerging market low-income debt crisis. Okay. Adam, you've managed to persuade me both that currency markets are sort of more disconnected from real economies, but also more important (laughs) than I previously had appreciated. So, yeah, we do need to leave it there for now, but we will be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And 
I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, welcome back. The next data point is 12. That is the percentage of revenue that Sotheby's real estate earned off of fees from Americans buying properties in Italy in the first quarter of this year. That's compared to just 5% of revenue from Americans one year ago coming from Italy. There's one woman who's interviewed in, in a report and says, you know, I want to buy a home in Atlanta, but I can't do that for less than $400,000. I can move to Sicily and get a gorgeous home there for less than $100,000. So this is just the economic reality that Americans are grappling with. So clearly, Americans are finding it more attractive to buy homes in Italy and also elsewhere in Europe, it turns out. That may be driven by housing conditions in the United States. Obviously, housing prices had recently gone up in the United States. But it may also be related to issues in Italy and elsewhere in Europe, demographic issues specifically with aging societies. So yeah, this entire complex network of issues related to real estate and demographics and prices of real estate we thought that was a topic that we should address. So to start off, Adam, it struck me that in American English, the words we use for for land and property, those terms are almost interchangeable. So I wonder, does the ownership of land kind of predate other kinds of property? Is kind of land the most fundamental kind of property in some sense? If you think about like ancient humanity, ancient, ancient, I mean, it's kind of improbable that land would be the first form of property. If you think about hunter-gatherers or whatever, presumably they had what we would recognize as property, possessions that were tools and receptacles and elementary clothing, maybe even slaves, before they settled land. Because land is, you know, the settlement of land is a function of the Neolithic revolution, the agricultural revolution, and the population densities that come from that. And then absolutely landed property clearly acquires a preeminence because the survival of complex societies depends on the management of land and farming and agriculture. And if you look at the, you know, I just Googled up the Code of Hammurabi, you know, the Babylonian legal text, one of the oldest legal texts in 
you know, in the broadest sense of the word, you know, well, it's Middle Eastern civilization, right? So this is from 1700 BC. And it already has very clear provisions for both landed and what you might call commercial property, indeed, even really quite detailed regulations on lending, so essentially credit claims and so on. So at that stage, clearly, property was already very much multi-stranded. It included land, it included the produce of land, it included legal claims on that in the form of credit, it included slaves, it included household goods. All of those forms of property were already you know, included in the, in the Hammurabi Code. I think in Europe, you know, in, in as it were, the, the cradle of the legal American legal system and the European legal systems, there is a predominance of landed property as the main category of claim that really emerges in the medieval period from the 1200s onwards. And, and what emerges there is, as it were, a distinction between hereditary feudal lands and the property of non-aristocratic groups which needs legal vindication and needs legal you know, entitlement that can be secured through the law courts against the claims of feudal lords. Um, and it's really out of that from the 1200s onwards that uh, modern legal conceptions of property in the form that we understand them in the West today emerge. And then really from, this, from the 16th century, from the 1500 onwards, with the development of capitalist commerce, you get the development of you know, thicker and thicker conceptions of modern commercial property independently of, of land. But if you kind of span that entire arc, one would have to say that possessions other than land come first. And then, as it were, with the agrarian settlement, land acquires this absolute preeminence from which then the European legal codes begin to again release themselves in the 1500s so that now real estate is just one category amongst a variety of different properties forms of property. Um, it remains, however, still by far and away the largest single asset class. It's worth saying that. One one imagines perhaps that you know finance and industry and so on have displaced real estate, but it's not true. The, the largest pool of assets in the world are still uh, real estate linked. So there's a cliche in American English about uh, real estate's value being determined by three things, uh, and those being location, location, location. I wonder, though, if there are sort of other factors, you know, outside of the location and the house itself that disproportionately influence the value one way or the other of property or real estate? I think above all, it's income that matters here. Like, like, so location, location, location matters in relation to, to income. And that's the, that's the fundamental variable. So property markets boom where you have rapid income growth. And in that kind of space, then, say the Bay Area or, or London in Europe, it's only when you have very rapid income growth and credit piled on top of that that you can see this surging expansion of real estate prices. You could then add a kind of an attention economy element on top of that in the sense that in the modern media sphere and by way of the internet and so on, as it were, the positioning of properties makes a huge difference. And there is, in fact, you know, systematic evidence on the way in which photographers pose properties influences uh, property prices that are actually realized. Zillow is, as you'd imagine, a, a very sensitive monitor of those kind of effects. I have to say, I don't know whether there's any evidence on you know, the, the presence of haunted houses or historical uh, factors in determining prices, but the, the most basic demand and supply factor here is simply disposable income in relation to the scarce resource of real estate in particular locations. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of that scarcity, it strikes me that countries like the United States are always talking about their need for additional housing, but that's in terms that tend to exceed their population growth. So I wonder, you know, what accounts for that mismatch? I mean, why isn't there more emphasis on, yeah, just recirculating existing housing, reusing what's already there? I think, um, you know, actually, if you look across the United States, it really depends on which housing markets you're talking about. In the most overheated U.S. markets, notably California has become absolutely notorious for this, in the Bay Area in particular. I mean, there's a, there's a critical failure to build new housing and um, across America, but also in large parts of Europe as well. There is a significant shortfall in the construction of housing in the right places, by which we mean where people need to move because the labor market is hot. And matching labor markets to housing is one of the really critical structural issues for rapid economic development all over the world. Because one of the perverse effects that we see is that in you know, the dramatic hotspots of global economic growth, the real estate prices rise so rapidly that they offset the higher incomes that um, higher skilled workers can command in those kind of labor markets, which then diminishes the incentive for people to move to those zones of economic growth and mean that ultimately it's landlords or landowners controlling the ultimate scarce factor, which is you know the space for a family home in the Bay Area, that reap the rewards of technological innovation. I mean, it goes all the way back to something like you know Ricardo's analysis of economic growth in Britain and that it's the scarce factor that reaps the reward. And that, from the point of view of economic growth, is is anything but desirable. You'd want to reward the talent of software engineers, not the people who happen to have inherited homes in the Bay Area. But if the landowners can drive prices up, then that means that those rewards to innovation and growth will be clawed back by essentially rather conservative groups. Because how do you generate that scarcity? Well, what you do is you manipulate local politics so as to make it virtually impossible to build high-density housing in many of these kind of areas. So a politicized process that generates scarcity means that the, the rewards to innovative economic growth are distributed towards more conservative, status quo-orientated groups. And this is a, you know, in striking contrast to countries like Japan, which, which have a radically different model of, of housing construction. I mean, more permits were issued in the city of Tokyo alone for the construction of new housing in any given year than in all of California, because the Japanese, you know, treat the housing stock more like a flow. It's something that rapidly depreciates, is torn down and then rebuilt. And so this generates a much more manageable real estate market. Obviously, Japan has had its own issues with the real estate market in the 70s and 80s. It was a byword for excessive real estate prices. But certainly in recent decades, we've seen a completely different evolution in real estate prices uh, in Japan compared to Tokyo, compared to other comparable cities. And in large part, that's driven by the the scale of construction. So what about countries with declining populations, you know, like Italy and Germany? You know, these are places with aging populations. I mean, what is going to happen with all of the houses across those countries when just mathematically there aren't enough people to live in them. I mean, are these economically significant as stranded assets? Could this be a kind of problem in the works for these countries? I think it's some way away before the demographic factors really begin to bite in a meaningful way. I mean, that's an experience that will unfold over decades rather than in the short run. Um, There are more immediate reasons for worrying, notably about German real estate and the surge in prices that we've seen in the last decade and the pressures that are now going to hit the Eurozone economy. 
But if you're asking, you know, do we have ways for thinking about declining populations and real estate and their impact on each other? I mean, we, we have plenty of experience in, in fact, both those countries. So in the Italian case, you have the huge migration of population, tens of millions of people in the decades after 1945 from the countryside to the cities in the course of the extraordinary economic growth that Italy went through between the end of World War II and the 1980s. And what that left behind was entire rural areas which were depopulated. And the Italian countryside was dotted with abandoned farmhouses, decaying you know, hillside terraces, olive groves that had been let run to seed. All that picturesque stuff that was then rediscovered in the 60s and really very, very dramatically from the 70s and 80s onwards and then became the basis for the new Italian tourist economy based on precisely this, right? Second home ownership, agro-tourismo, that entire complex. So you see a society there cycling from a relatively dense rural population to the depopulation of the countryside to therefore the dereliction of some of that property and then its reincorporation into the process of accumulation and growth, often involving either people who now live in the cities and have a second home in the countryside or northern Europeans for whom a love of Italy became, you know, really one of the one of the great obsessions of the 80s and 90s in, in Germany, for instance. And in the German case, it's just not quite so picturesque. But if you think about large parts of the former GDR, uh, which, uh, you know, before the war was built in 61, was seeing mass emigration from east to west. And then that population migration was contained between the early 60s and 1989, but then as soon as reunification was put into effect, that population flow resumed again. And there are large parts of eastern Germany which are considerably depopulated, have a rapidly aging population. And the effects of that are really rather damaging, right? So what you see is network effects. So it's not just that one house becomes empty and no longer inhabited. Uh, but that a whole string of houses are, which then means is that the post office has to close and the local shop and the local school. And then you fall below a kind of critical mass and basic amenities of all types, you know, become unsustainable. And then that feeds back into the value of properties. And of course, you don't need to go as an American speaking from an American point of view as far as Europe to see this. You just need to look in any American inner city from the 1960s onwards or in Detroit in the last 10 years to see that kind of process of depopulation and dereliction and devaluation of assets playing out in rather dramatic form. I mean, the entire city of Detroit at one point looked as though it was going to become a stranded asset. Right? Um, it has undergone a considerable revival since. But those logics are very dramatic, can play out quite violently, really, in the destruction of values and, in fact, the destruction of livelihoods and homes and literally the dereliction and ruin of entire places which then, however, also opens them up again for reincorporation in the perhaps the most optimistic scenario. Okay, so it sounds like the coming decades may offer some opportunities for investment in Italy or Germany, but there may also be this risk then of investing in a place that goes below that threshold and then you're stuck in a place without post office or roads. Okay, <laughs> so... But yeah, I guess finally I wanted to ask, I noticed that just generally Americans are so used to thinking of their housing as precisely as investments. Um, and I was wondering if there are other economic relationships that it's possible to have uh, with land. I mean, and what those would be. Uh, would it be, yeah, as an object of consumption or as a trust of some kind or as the fulfillment of a basic right? I mean, which of these seem most apt to you, Adam? I think they all have a place. It was really fascinating to think about, actually. I mean, what would it mean to consume land? Um, and, I mean, I think the 
what came to mind there were kind of slash and burn, you know, economies, agricultures um, in colonial settings. You can't even really call them settler colonial because the whole point is you don't really settle, not for more than a year or two of growing, where land is essentially regarded as abundant, uh, as kind of recalcitrant, actually, not as an asset so much as something that needs to be subdued. Above all, it tends to be wooded. So you have to fell the trees, burn them down, plant whatever crops you're going to plant. And then move on. And great forests of the Pacific Northwest were destroyed like this in in North America. Amazonia today uh, is really very much on people's minds because of the acceleration of deforestation there under the Bolsonaro regime in Brazil. So that's, I think, kind of a vision of land being literally consumed. We we do, you're right, I think, think of homes now as an investment. But um, how did they end up that way? Because it's not the obvious way necessarily of thinking about land. If you think about the older regimes of property rights in Europe, for instance, they are actually much more expansive, right? They, they incorporate the right of landowners to exercise legal privileges, a kind of mini sovereignty, up to and including to a form of ownership of the people who lived and worked on the land in the form of serfdom, for instance. And for land to become an asset, uh, to be an investment, it, it had to be something you could sell. And those are changes that were brought about really as a result of the successive political revolutions in England in the 1600s, in France at the end of the 18th century, and the so-called Prussian reforms in the late 18th and early 19th century, when all of a sudden land, which previously was bonded and tied to an owner, which was a trust of type, and on the basis of that trust founded huge privileges, suddenly was thrown open to the market. And that's one of, you know, you you also talked about the rights to land. Um you could also, I think, think in terms of the sort of land reform model, the you know peasant society type model, where, where the basic idea is that you achieve a utopian model by way of distributing more equally the claims to land. Which And why would those matter? Because they ultimately provide a family with security, the means to support itself, um, the means to sustain a livelihood outside the market, potentially. So all of those, it's kind of a kaleidoscope of different meanings that you could associate with land. And I think if you think about the way in which modern Americans or Europeans think about property, it's not entirely fair to say that all that's left is investment. I mean, there's certainly an element of people's thinking, especially in hot housing markets, it becomes obsessive. You can't get away from the conversations, right, about who's done well out of which house purchase and so on. But at the same time, all those other meanings are sort of still still there. I mean, you if you, you don't have to own a house for very long to realize that you do consume it. <laughs> and the bloody thing needs endless maintenance. Unless If you don't do that, you literally run it down. And it's quite obvious that one of the things that draws people to owning property is the sense of, well, I mean, it comes with rights and duties. You have obligations all of a sudden. You have neighbors that you stand in relation to in a new way, if I think, if you're an owner of property as opposed to simply a, a tenant who might be only passing through in, in the short term. And then finally, it's quite clear that even in modern society, right, this is where the agony of dispossession is so acute when it comes to real estate. It's not the same as having your car repossessed. If you lose your home, even in the modern world, you clearly are losing far more than simply an asset. Um, and it's, and it's, it's profoundly damaging and disruptive to society when people are, as they were, for instance, in 2008, forced en masse out of their homes largest dispossession, the last forced migration of the American population since the Dust Bowl of the 1930s was after 2008, because what, 10 million plus American families lost lost their homes in one form or another, were forced to move. So 
I think all of those other meanings are still, you know, still resonate, even if, if even if as you, you know, you quite rightly say the notion of property as investment has become so powerfully dominant. Yeah, and it's like I think a, a good reminder that these other relationships are themselves still economic, even if they're not necessarily capitalist. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And, of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. 
like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.